Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Ugh, this new 50 Cent CD really sucks. I mean, it's just awful. What don't you like about it? Which song? Well, I didn't like that song that, well, all of them. They're all just terrible. How many times did you listen to it? Listen? Well, I didn't listen, but I saw some tweets that looked pretty negative, and Pitchfork reviewed it. What did that review say? Eh, it was long. I usually look at the numerical rating. It was a four point something. Like uh, 4.9? Mm, I'm not sure. I don't usually read past the decimal point. So you didn't even read the whole number, and is it out of a possible 10? Dude, I don't know. What is this, the Spanish Inquisition? Look, it's just a it's a hip-hop CD. It's not Wuthering Heights. <laughs> have you ever read Wuthering Heights? No, but I have watched half the video of the Kate Bush song. <laughs> and then what happened? Eh, I lost my constant. Look, a squirrel! So can you think of any piece of culture or information that you've finished all the way through in the last three years? Um, oh, I did read six of the eight crazy science facts on BuzzFeed. Is six more than eight? Our civilization is in grave trouble. Today on The Nose, is it better to open 100 browser tabs than to curse the darkness? A conversation about faking cultural literacy. Also, the hot debate about baseball in Hartford. And now he's read two-thirds of the Wikipedia entry about the Kardashians. Colin McEnroe. I was almost finished with that Wikipedia entry, and then I just dozed off. I was reading it in bed, and then uh, then I lent it to a friend. So uh, <laughs> it's a Woody Allen joke. Um, all right, so uh, what we're going to talk about today, well, first of all, let me just introduce who's here. Uh, food critic, restaurant critic, short story writer, novelist, uh, and other things, Rand Cooper is with us. Uh, the ne plus ultra of SAS, and also a fine representative of the Mark Twain house, Jacques Lamar is with us. Uh, and, uh, and what did you say? Roving literary scholar, something along those similar lines. Rebecca Castellani uh, is here with us, <laughs> making her second appearance here on the nose. So we're going to begin with this notion of faking cultural literacy. This is actually an essay that appeared a couple of weeks ago in the New York Times. We would have talked about it last week, except that the nose moved up to Great Barrington, and it was uh, all about film festivals and new films and stuff like that. So, um, And now I have to pretend that I saw all the films at the uh, Great Barrington Film Festival whenever they come up, because the notion of this was written by Carl Taro Greenfield uh, in the New York Times. Uh, he writes, every few weeks, my wife mentions the latest book her book club is reading, and no matter what it is, whether I've read it or not, I offer an opinion of the work based entirely on... Well, what exactly? Often these are books I've not even read a review or essay about, yet I freely hold forth on the grandiosity of Cheryl Strayed or the unrestrained sentimentality of Edwidge Danticat. These data motes are gleaned apparently from the ether or more realistically the various social media feeds. What was Solange's, uh, Solange Knowles' elevator attacks on, attack on Jay-Z about? I didn't watch the security camera video on TMZ. It would have taken too long. But I scrolled through enough chatter to know that Solange scrubbed her Instagram feed of photos of her sister. How about this season of Game of Thrones and that non-consensual intercourse in the crypt? 
I don't watch the show, but I've scanned the recaps on Vulture.com. I'm prepared to argue that this was deeply offensive. Uh, he goes on. And he, he, he sort of sums it up with, it's never been so easy to pretend to know so much without actually knowing anything. We pick topical, relevant bits, bits from Facebook, Twitter, or emailed news alerts and then regurgitate them instead of watching Mad Men or the Super Bowl or the Oscars or a presidential debate. You can simply scroll through someone else's live tweeting of it or read the recaps the next day. Our cultural canon is becoming determined by whatever gets the most clicks. So... Uh, before Rand puts me on trial for this, I will plead guilty to a certain amount of faking cultural literacy, uh, FCL. But go ahead, Rand, put me on trial or put the universe on trial. It's, it's, first of all, I think we all agree here that when you read this piece, you can't help but feel implicated by it. You can't help but feel that it's written about you. Now, uh, whether that makes you feel bad or guilty or whether you just happily accept that you are this this sort of – mosaic maker who takes bits and pieces of things and makes a special tapestry all your own. Maybe you feel happy about that or proud about that. That's a different different reaction. But to me, it's not, Colin, when I say that I feel you are implicated in this, it's not the fakery part of it. It's, It's the avid grazer through very broad pastures of contemporary culture part of it. I, I tend to think, you know, people, and I think this is perhaps one metaphor for, for, for trying to uh, address this issue. People end up um, compiling a certain cubic footage of intellectual and cultural stuff. And you can do it by either going really, really deep and sort and narrow, or you can do it by ranging far and wide. And, and when I think about you, Colin, I think y- you go deeper than anyone else who goes broader, <laughs> but you go broader than anyone else who goes deeper, mm-hmm. and you end up with a sort of maximal amount of, of stuff. But uh, you're also a master of grabbing this, grabbing that, and, and sort of putting stuff together without necessarily always, at least until you start working out in the, uh, in the weight room where you actually read entire books, but without actually doing you know, the whole thing. Now, um, I think what, what implicates all of us in this – I remember when I was thinking about this, this, uh, this article a number of years ago, maybe 20 years ago, Saul Bellow, who was already an old man, was asked about something that appeared in GQ magazine. And he stopped and he said, GQ magazine? What is that? And he said it in this sort of majestic, imperious way that he was reading Boccaccio's Decameron. <laughs> and so he didn't have – not only did he not have time apparently to read GQ, but he didn't have time to absorb the fact of the existence of GQ. <laughs> This piece, this article, posits that we have gone so far in the other extreme that we're sort of no longer capable of navigating the great monuments of culture because we're busy endlessly distracting ourselves with little, with little, little bits and pieces that are floating by us. So that, that's the other aspect in addition to the sort of I'm anxious because I'm faking things. That's, that's the psychological part of it. I mean I, if I had to guess, and I, I'd be delighted to be proved wrong, uh, if I were going to uh, uh, draw a line – separating those sitting in this room who feel really guilty about that from those who don't. I would draw a line on which uh, Rand and I were on one side and Jacques and Rebecca were on the other. <laughs> but, 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 and, and that's not even a value judgment. I mean, I don't know. Somebody who has grown up, Rebecca, with the, you know, the particular set uh, of information stimuli that you've grown up with, there's almost no other way that you can live other than to keep 30 tabs open on your screen and kind of assemble this mosaic, the, the kind of thing that Rand's talking about. I do feel like my culture and my peers require me to keep abreast of an enormous volume of pop culture information that I particularly don't really care about, but I'm still required to have an opinion on it. I mean, I can't 
go out to a bar without somebody asking me, what did you see Kim Kardashian's wedding dress? What did you think? And and I hate to say it, but I, I've seen the wedding dress. I looked at it on BuzzFeed. I watched, I read the 32 most expensive things that Kim Ye spent on their wedding. I can't help but be engaged in this, and I don't really feel as I have much of a choice. Well, why not? I just feel like instead of talking about things, you know, people reading a full article and talking about the depth of the article, it's we're just too ADD and we're too fragmented with the way information is given us for anyone to have a conversation that's much deeper than just these superficial facts. One of the givens of this article is that there are two givens. One, we're living a hectic, scatter, increasingly hectic and scattered cultural and mental life and that this creates anxiety. But two, there's, a count, there's an underlying even greater anxiety and that is that we might not we might be seen to not know something. Mm-hmm. We might be seen to miss a reference. So one question to put to this piece is, where is that anxiety coming from? Uh, and and why, you know, why do we feel it? I think there's a, another question here. I, I didn't read the whole article, but... Um, <laughs> yeah. Come on, man. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I read the whole article. Um, so, but I think there's another question here. And, and actually, Mike Pesca, as usual, framed it really beautifully. He was in, on Slate Culture Gamfest talking about this, too. And, and he was sort of saying, is it possible that there actually is a, diff- a slightly different standard evolving for what it means to comprehend a piece of information, you know, and that let's say that you don't have time. The example he gave was let's say there's the 15,000-word Ta-Nehisi Coates uh, Atlantic article about reparations, which everybody agrees is this incredibly pivotal uh, part of a discussion and and, and maybe the best essay that anybody's going to write in 2014, et cetera. You know, can you read a couple of thousand words of it, uh, listen to two or three podcast interviews and analyses about it, and read some other stuff on social media? You know, I mean, you know, Jacques, as somebody who who stands here, among other things, as a representative of a place that's really about reading and presumably about reading the entire book. I'm just also I'm wondering if we live in a, in a moment where there, where the press has got an interesting point. I wonder if reading about something or knowing about something is being subtly, slowly redefined in that direction. Um, in, in the direction of just you know, kind of glossing over and getting just a few quick things so you can air an opinion? Or? Well, but maybe also, uh, um, maybe in a, I mean, maybe what Rebecca does sometimes, I mean, she was nodding excitedly while I was saying that, so that's why I'm implicating her now, but um, <laughs> is, you know, maybe read the first two, 3,000 words, then start reading some analysis, listen to some podcasts, you know, check, check what the five people on Twitter that she really trusts are saying about that. You begin to sort of develop a picture of what something is without necessarily having um, in it, having ingested it uh, the way that typically, traditionally, for the X hundred years, we would we would have done that. Gotcha. Um, I, you know, I I don't know if I guess that's a direction that we're we're heading. In. I mean, the thing is, I actually prefer to like I get disappointed that magazines have cut back on word counts and stuff so, so much that it's hard to get any substance out of these short articles and things like I, I agonize over the fact that Rolling Stones reviews of albums now are so teeny. They're you know, they used to be really thoughtful things and now they're micro paragraphs and whatnot. And so I actually pine for the days of getting more information. And so I find when there's a story that I'm interested in, I I prefer to go try and do the deeper dive and and find more information. Even if it's something stupid like the Kim and Kanye wedding. 
Um, but before Ann starts up, I just want to just give out our phone number, too. 860-275-7266. Are you, A, finding uh, increasingly that that is how you digest information? Uh, or, B, are you decrying the fact that people do that um, all the time? There's a difference between, say, a, the Ta-Nehisi Coates 15,000-word uh, argument about reparations and, let's say, uh, a novel. Uh, one of my reading projects for this summer, and it's in part because this writer's name is now so ubiquitous that mm, I, I have to read the books, is to read the Patrick Melrose uh, books by Edward St. Aubin, mm-hmm. the, the, the British novelist. Now, with Tom Hesey Coates' argument, I, I can read, I imagine you could probably distill six points from, the, from that argument that are going to sum up uh, what what he's advocating. And it, it seems to me legitimate to to read a precy and say, okay, I haven't read the 15,000 words, but I know what he's arguing. Because the essence of the argument is not in every small elaboration in every sentence. Mm-hmm. However, a work of art is something different. And to come along and imply that you've, oh, well, I've read Edward St. Aubin because, well, he's profiled in The New Yorker and, 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 and uh, his name surfaces everywhere, and imply that you've read him is a wholly different thing. You can't get the essence of reading a novelist by simply hearing three comments about him. You can get the essence of being able to talk about having read a novelist. And that's what this, this writer is talking about. That's, that's a totally See, different I would, thing. I would never want to cop to knowing more than I do on something, and I never would want to uh, ed- say that I had I had read something that I hadn't, you know, at all, and I just kind of glossed an opinion. I mean, that's the thing about this that I don't relate to at all. In, well, in I, terms of the story, I also think Rebecca within the within the world of faking cultural literacy, there are a bunch of different levels, and so one level might be what I just described before. You read a few thousand words of Tanahasi, then you know you read some other stuff. Yeah, I mean, pretty soon you pile up this kind of mosaic of information about the thing. But we've all experienced this. I experience this all the time with my own work, even though later in this conversation I will plead deep. Deeply guilty to committing the exact offense that I'm talking about right now. But routinely, if my work is posted on social media, on Facebook, I will get comments back from people who I can tell simply saw the title, the headline, whatever it was that popped up. And you know, NPR did uh, an April Fool's joke this year. I don't like April Fool's jokes, but this was brilliant. They, they posted a link that said, uh, why don't Americans read anymore? Uh, and and so and they encouraged their listeners to just post that on social media. The body of the text basically said, "This is an April Fool's joke to see how much people will comment uh, about." Uh, an article they haven't read. And indeed, as this came up on Facebook feeds, people were writing back to the article saying, well, I do read, blah, 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 you know, and, and all kinds of things about their own reading habits and everybody else's reading habits, unaware of the fact they were commenting on something that really wasn't about what they thought it was because all they did was read the title. This has got to be something that you encounter as you uh, traverse the net and, and exchange information with your fellows. The best example of this happening recently I can think of was the recent passing of Maya Angelou. And there must have been a hundred posts on my Facebook of people quoting the same and still I rise section of the poem. And it, it really gave me pause to think how many of these people have actually read the full poem, have read another poem by Maya Angelou, no any single fact about her. And it, it, there was just this feeling that just because it was the number one thing trending on Facebook that everybody had to lend their voice to it without actually really doing it justice and doing the work behind it. So what I took away from this piece was this discrepancy between information anxiety and knowledge anxiety. This information anxiety, we have to be up with all the current things that are going on versus what I feel more prevalently is this knowledge anxiety where I want to be informed. I don't want to post something 
that's just a recapitulation of something I've read on Twitter. I want, so I tend to personally do a lot more background research because I get anxiety about not being fully knowledgeable about something as opposed to just being informed in 140 characters. Right. Well, what, what Colin's talking about, and you see this all the time, is, is the, uh, the urge to comment. <laughs> and I think that, that Carl uh, Green, Greenfeld, who wrote this piece, has ironically and very smartly encoded into the opening paragraphs uh, part of his problem is that he wants, I offer an opinion of the work. I freely hold forth on this. I am prepared to argue. I am ready to say that so-and-so's position. So people feel this great. Uh, it's democracy culturally as punditocracy. And everyone now, aided and abetted by, by the web, is now holding forth. And so part of the, of the pathology or the syndrome that he's describing is this rampant opinionizing that everyone, mm-hmm. everyone is not, they're not just having a conversation. You know, if you go back to Tocqueville and, and, and Tocqueville's book on democracy in America, he says in America there, there is no real conversation. There is just, and I'm, I'm, I have to, I have to uh, paraphrase, there's just a clash of everyone's opinion. One man opinionizes and then another follows with another opinion. We've stayed true to that, uh, to, to to that, to that theme of American life, and it's, it's become extreme. See, now somebody's going to take that de Tocqueville thing and start tweeting it without having read Democracy in America, <laughs> and it's just going to start moving around. Uh, oh, yeah, I've read de Tocqueville. Yeah. But the other thing yeah, is, yeah. obviously, we, we live in an information so society. Boring. I've so heard of him. There, there's, there's also a status <laughs> in a sort of vague, now let's just, in a Veblenian sense, but like Tom Wolfe's sense as well, there's a status value to having information. We live in an information society, so the, the more you show that you command an enormous amount of information, you're doing two things. You're conveying power because we live in a society where information is currency and power, and you're also making a kind of, a kind of status claim. Hey, I know a lot. So, so that's part of the anxiety that this guy is And Rand is just did that right now. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> let me grab a call I'm from, feeling very small. Let, let, me, let me grab a call from Mark in Naugatuck. Hi, Mark. Um, hey, Colin. You know, in the time that uh, I uh, called into the show to uh, the point where I became part of the show, I've realized that I am I'm a victim of this because I had this knee-jerk reaction to that comment about the micro-paragraph Rolling Stone reviews. And I was just like, I totally related to that. And I was like, oh, yeah, I remember the days when the latest Talking Heads album would get a page-and-a-half review, and I just felt the need to call in. And now I realize that... I, I really don't have anything to say about that. <laughs> <laughs> that is so beautiful, though. You know, the first step is admitting you have a problem. Um, and so you just did that. That's really great. Thanks for calling in, Mark. Um, I, I just – I do feel – I feel as though I can be a pretty good case in point about this this phenomenon. And so lately I've been doing some work for Salon.com, uh, and they, they, they kind of want me to write every week. And I didn't really have anything I wanted to write about this week. And so I emailed them, and I said, is there anything you're dying to get a piece about? And they said, well, yeah, you know, something about Patton Oswalt, you know, just announced that he's going off uh, social media, going off the internet for a while. And I could sort of tell that they don't like Patton Oswalt. And I didn't know too much about him. He's a comedian. For those of you who know nothing about him, he's a comedian. He's also an actor. He appears in movies. He's uh, had a memorable scene on Parks and Recreation, uh, the television show. Uh, He's also Constable Bob on Justified. But he's mainly a comedian. And he's a guy who's very active on the internet, too. And he stirs up a lot of trouble on the internet. And and so I just, I mean, I, I sort of researched him enough. You know, I watched a bunch of his comedy routines. I read some things that he'd written. I looked at his sort of social media profile. I read a couple of other little, a long thing that he wrote about why he was going off social media. And then I wrote this piece in which I did admit that I'm not a Patton Oswalt expert, that I really only kind of know 
who he is. Um, and so here's where, here are my thoughts about this. The next thing that happened was that Salon, which doesn't like Patton Oswalt more than I realized, even had realized, slapped this pretty incendiary headline uh, on it that was much more hostile to Patton Oswalt than, than I had ever intended to be in my piece. And a lot of people were doing that thing. They were just seeing the headline on a Twitter feed, on a Facebook feed, and getting really mad at me. But I was also thinking, well, I was sort of part of the problem, too. Why I shouldn't have written a piece about Patton Oswalt, since when you really get down to it, I don't care about him. Uh, and, you know, I'm just not a Patton Oswalt scholar. But I'm sort of worrying that that's what journalism is turning into, you know? Is like, go figure out something about this and write it. And well, you know, I it's it's funny, and I don't know if we're segueing into an, uh, another topic that we had had discussed. No, do that about, segue. I know where you're going. Well, go, about take us there about um, us looking at people like uh, John Stewart and Stephen Colbert and whatnot as authentic sources of journalistic information. Not only authentic, but well trusted, mm-hmm. um, so that. Uh, well, you asked people, a bunch of people a question about this, right? Well, yeah, we had we had an event at the museum uh, a week ago with Joe Mudo, who wrote a book called "An Atheist in the Foxhole," and it's about his eight years working at Fox. And we had an audience uh, that was predominantly—I mean, literally, there's only like one person in the audience who was a Fox News fan. Everyone else was identified as a Fox News hater or ambivalent. And so, you know, during the proceedings, I asked the audience, I'm like, who do you trust to get your news? Because there is such an overwhelming sense of we don't trust the media anymore. And, you know, there were some people who who said NPR. There were some people who said The New York Times. But the thing that everyone got behind was Jon Stewart and Stephen Colbert. And I look at, at, you know, oftentimes there are these, you know, these shows. uh, They don't really do them as much anymore. But they would have like a week, a wrap up of the week's news, and then after each thing was snarky commentary by a comedian. And you figure, like, how much are these comedians really sitting down and researching this thing? Or are they just asked to quick come up with an opinion on it? And I kind of feel like that sort of a, um, you know, quick, easily digestible bits of information and then some funny feedback on it is what we are kind of sliding towards. Although I'm wondering if that's so terrible. I mean, I think it's completely true that, you know, the people who have turned out to be really good at explaining the news to, to other people and kind of, and kind of do it, both digging kind of deep anyway and then creating a framework of perspective so that people, people can understand are John Stewart and Stephen Colbert. And I would even add John Oliver on his new show. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. Is that so terrible? Is that a terrible way to understand the news? No, I think it's more instructional. I think that instead of being inundated with quite usually dramatic, overblown headlines and then you get the same news coverage for six hours, you're actually getting an instruction in what you're talking about. I love the Colbert, his whole breakdown of the super PACs. And I personally, who I don't have very much experience with civics, learned so much from that that I would never have just been given freely on CNN or Fox News or NBC or any of those news networks. But I mean, so much of the time on on Stewart and Colbert are, is pointed towards mocking how the other networks are presenting that information. Satire has always been, though, the truest way to touch the pulse of society. So I think mm-hmm. that in a way that we've gone back to that whole 18th century inclination towards the best way to enact change is to poke fun at what's going wrong. And 19th century. Yeah, 19th. Please come visit the Mark Twain house. <laughs> 
<laughs> Actually, the uh, Annenberg Public Policy Center uh, did a study showing that Colbert was doing a better job than other news outlets of teaching people about campaign financing. This all refers to the fact that he walked America through the setting up of a super PAC uh, in, in kind of the post-Citizens United um, age. The study, published online in Mass Communication and Society, tested the Colbert report against CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, and Broadcast Nightly News, as well as talk radio and newspapers, as a source of political information. The study, Stephen Colbert's civic le- civics lesson, was based on phone survey data from X thousand adults, and watching the Colbert report served as an extended uh, civics lesson, the researcher said. The show not only increased people's perceptions that they knew more about political financing, but significantly increased their actual knowledge. We do have a little clip uh, of Colbert himself commenting on this uh, and then showing a little montage of what he's up against from those other broadcast outlets. Let's hear those. But tonight, I am compelled to take a moment to recognize someone else's recognition of me. Jim? A new study says this one person on this one TV show is actually doing a better job educating you than other news organizations. It was that. Answer the Colbert Report. Researchers at the Annenberg Public Policy Center found that the Colbert Nation not only thought they knew more about something as wonky as campaign finance reform than others, they were actually right. That's right. I did a better job informing the public about campaign finance reform than every other news organization and CNN. I humbly bow myself before the masters. Coming up next on New Day, are you ready for a Prince selfie? What videos did you forward to all your friends this year? The baby squirrel in a cast. Need we say any more? We're going to introduce you to the world's first burrito vending machine. Coming up next, right here, what your dog could be doing when you're not home. Wow. The bar of lowness has been set very high. So uh, that was Diane Sawyer at the end, of course. And, and so, I mean, one of the, uh, Rand, one of the um, things that happened when the kind of blog revolution started in the early 2000s was that a lot of people started blogging about the news. And one of the things, the, the ones who were better at it, but who weren't journalists said, you know, this isn't that hard, really. You know, you don't need all kinds of special training to figure out a lot of this stuff. You just need to work pretty hard at it. And the people who are supposed to be good at it are getting things wrong and making things up. And so the big difference between me and Maureen Dowd is that she gets a paycheck and I don't. And, you know, I watch these guys like Colbert and Stewart and Oliver. They're, they, they don't, they're not career journalists, but they're kind of proving that if you think about this stuff, it's not, it's not as hard as people make it seem to be. And the people who are supposed to be good at it aren't taking it seriously anymore anyway. Well, there, there are a number of things that fascinate me here, and I, I do watch occasionally Stewart and Colbert, and I always enjoy it. They're so smart. They're, they're funny. And you do get a tilt on the news. It happens to coincide with mine, so you know, I feel quite at home with it. I try to imagine myself being an ideological opponent of them, and I might not find it quite as funny. But um, I, I think here's one interesting thing, and then I'll say one possibly vexing thing. The interesting thing is wh- what, what advantage – does it give us, and it's not a rhetorical question, and what difference does it make to have news given with the attitude already built in? 
It's a different experience. It may be that there are essentially literary devices, and I think the Annenberg piece sort of, sort of nods at this, that there are narrative, uses of narrative, uses of satire, uh, Rebecca, you mentioned this, and, 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 and irony, that make it easier for us to actually think about and remember the story that's being, that's being told. So, for instance, to say that the bar of lowness has now been set very high, you, you can think about that all day. Mm-hmm. So there's a way in which the very blandness of mainstream traditional news that was fundamentally a part of its objectivity and therefore a selling point. We are objective because we are bland, and we're bland because we're objective. Eventually sort of degrades from today's perspective into just mushy, oatmeal-like, you know, nothingness. So there's something with spice in it. Um, is, uh, is is sort of inherently more attractive. We value entertainment values. So, oh, it, it's a kind of Trojan horse, and we learn that way. The, to me, the vexing part, this part two would be, well, what if that was the only means of getting our news? I mean, I, I feel like, first of all, hey, we're on NPR here. This is NPR. I mean, I know Colin is an anomalous figure here. Colin is like the John Stewart of NPR. But, but basically, NPR has a sort of relatively uninflected... Uh, and and straightforward and and civic minded engagement with the news and and I watch PBS and I value that kind of news and I I do think yes I understand the New York Times is liberal but I but they devote enormous resources to presenting the news straight as it were and if we only had satire and irony based news presentations in a world without sort of the standard from which those shows productively deviate I would be like existentially nervous in a news dimension of my soul. We're going to take a break and move on to the next thing. I just I'm going to just close out by saying, on the other hand, the knock that we get against NBR, one of the accusations leveled against that uninflected um, style of reporting is that people ultimately do want a little bit more of a take. You know, it's if, if, I, if I present an issue like net neutrality and I tell you one set of things on one side and then I tell you a whole bunch of positions on the other side and then I'm done – uh, for a lot of people, they, they, they actually would like us to sort of close this circle uh, occasionally and say, but however, this second set of claims is simply not true. Uh, anyway, we have to take a little break. We'll come back with more. Oh, are we back? We're back. Okay. <laughs> We're back. Uh, all right. So uh, we have to break off talking about that because um, one of the things – we're going to be dealing with this also on Monday's show and, and Jeff Cohen, our ace newsman, has been dealing with it every which way. But it was announced this week that uh, Hartford, almost looking for another sugar plum to put somewhere to get people more excited and happy, uh, is proposing to bring the uh, new Britain Rockets uh, 13.4 miles um, down the Connecticut fast track to, to Hartford and build a stadium costing – Somewhere in the neighborhood of $60 million, $50 million of it being in public monies. Um, I could go on, but you probably heard at least some of the reporting about this. Uh, we, I, I sort of feel as though so many questions about this have not been answered, and yet the whole thing is being rolled out as a fait accompli. Uh, we'd love to hear from you about this as we go along. 860-275-7266. 860-275-7266. Jacques, I'm going to start with you just because you're a downtown Hartford booster and a Hartford booster and you've lived through so many uh, different proposed 
things, bricks and mortar solutions and, and other kinds of solutions that, that were going to help Hartford so much. How does baseball look to you right now? Baseball maven that you are. <laughs> I, you know, I, I, when I first heard it, my, my first inclination wasn't yay Hartford. It was like I felt bad for New Britain. I did, uh, you know, because I, I feel like New, New Britain has such wonderful cultural assets but just gets kind of ignored and overshadowed by Hartford. And, you know, the Rockets were a nice thing for, for that city to have. So rather than being really excited to, for Hartford, my first, you know, impulse was that, you know, that this is not good for New Britain more than it's great for Hartford. And, um, you know, I, then I started thinking about, like, all the other things I'd rather see Hartford get, like a really good gay bar. We haven't had one of those in a while. Uh, is or, there really not a really good big gay bar in Hartford? I mean, you're, well, I mean, you're about to offend a whole bunch of gay bars by saying no. No, there, I mean, there's two gay bars in Hartford, and they've been around forever. But, I mean, you know, it, it'd be nice if there was something new in downtown. But uh, and, and then I was thinking, you know, like with the amount of money being thrown at this, you know, why can't we jumpstart the XL Center retail that has been sitting there moribund since they did the whole facelift on the building? And with that, because I, I agree with the people who are saying that. This is going to be exactly good for the Rock Cats. You know, it, it's not necessarily going to be super great for Hartford. People are going to come in for the game, see the game, and leave. They're not necessarily going to go park, eat somewhere else. You know, I, I'm, I'm you, just— you, not, you may be amused to know or outraged to know that the, the set of numbers and projections— Mm-hmm. Uh, and Je- Jeff Cohn, our ace newsman, did kind of uncover this yesterday. He finally pried out of the city the numbers and projections they're using for all the claims that they're making. Uh, one of the claim, one of the projections that they're using, one of the base numbers is that 10 percent of the people who go to see uh, Rockets games will then get a hotel room and spend the night in Hartford, uh, which is <laughs> a, a number which I believe is off by 10 percent. Um, <laughs> no, there are the parents of the players. Right. That would be about it. Yes. Um, so, Rin, I know you you, you have a, a – we'll, we'll save Rebecca for last because uh, Hartford's doing everything that it can possibly do to keep Rebecca and people like her from moving to Scotland or Austin, Texas or someplace like that. So we'll save her for last. I will just say that I love baseball, so you have to keep, take that into account. When we first – my wife and I first moved to Hartford, it was right at the time that the Patriots were uh, trying to make a deal to move here. Maybe it was not a legitimate deal, probably just Robert Kraft trying to get more leverage to have a better deal in, in Massachusetts. But at the time, I was a huge opponent of this move. It never made sense to me to take an NFL stadium, monstrous thing, plug it into the tiny footprint of, of downtown Hartford, and then have eight games a year when 50,000 people descend on the city, trash it, and then leave. It never made sense. And to do it on financial terms, that would have made the city a laughingstock. Uh, and I, I could not understand the euphoria. I was new in the city. I thought, what is this city doing? Everyone's euphoric about this horrifying, you know, terrible deal. Well, this time around, maybe I've just been here long enough, I've become Hartfordized. Um, with a few caveats, I, I, I'm in favor of this thing. I know you can never make the numbers add up on the, on the front end, and, and, and these numbers are invented. 600 jobs, I don't think anyone really believes that necessarily. But I do think that a small stadium, first of all, state, small stadiums, uh, will generate foot traffic. They can be nestled into the cityscape in a way that's quite lovely. Many baseball stadiums are really lovely additions to urban architecture. If you consider this not just on its own, but as part, as as one piece, a number of pieces of things that are happening downtown, that include Infinity Hall, include the Yukon campus, include projects that are now underway to more than double the number of apartment rentals downtown. I do believe that a stadium will 
increase dynamism of cultural life generally downtown. It'll be small scale. There will be a lot of foot traffic. I think there will be some benefit to bars and restaurants nearby. So I mean, I, You I, heard the same thing with Capital Community College, and people come in, park behind Capital Community College, go into that building, take their classes, and leave. There's really no economic footprint for outside of that college. I, I don't think that's a – I mean, I think if you were to say to talk to the people who run JoJo's, you know, the coffee shop, they would say, no, that that's not true. But I, I, you're, I understand the point that you're making. I, 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 well, anyway, I, I don't even want to try to comment on this yet or even on what But I'll just say there's something – I mean, there's something inherently lovely about baseball. Baseball was invented as – as an urban way of bringing pastoral values and structures into the center of a city. And it's not going to be done on an enormous scale. It's going to be done on a Hartford scale. I love – metaphors aside, I love the idea of Hartford as a, as a minor league baseball town. It's actually pretty perfect. And I will say the Rock Cats have always been very good about outreach programs to kids. Kids from my daughter's school, she goes to Hartford Public, uh, Public Grade School. They go to Rock Cat games, Rock Cats games all the time. The, the tickets are priced in a way that real people can actually afford them. It's a, it's a, it's a boost for kids living in the city of Hartford, and they're going to benefit from it. But it does seem to me uh, – I want to get to Rebecca in just a second. But it does seem to me that what happens here, and I see it again and again, is that people who are pretty hard-headed about public expenditures in other ways and people who understood a week or two ago that Hartford is so broke that its plan for balancing the budget was to sell off properties that it owned – Simply, simply to be able to balance the budget that it has. Hartford is so incredibly poor. And, and that this thing, the numbers on this thing really don't make sense. They've been cooked. Uh, they, they're the result of consultants telling people what they want to hear. Uh, they're not real numbers. There's some field of dreams dizziness that's pretty much summed up in the way that you're talking about it right now, saying, I really don't want to think about all that. I want to think how about how lovely it would be to have this ballpark in here. And you almost can't imagine plugging a different word in besides ballpark or stadium or sports arena and having people agree. That's right. Let's just forget about what $50 million is or whether we can really afford it, or whether it makes sense down the road, or whether it's even going to be a solvent franchise. So I, think, I don't want to think about any of this. Stop talking to me about it. I just want my baseball stadium. Um, and I, I think that's a gross mischaracterization <laughs> of what I just said. No, but it is. I'm not saying that's what, what you just said, but that's what I get from people. They, really, they don't want to talk about the numbers. They don't want to know anything about this. They just want a baseball stadium. Anyway. You're, would, it this, would this help keep a young, vital, interested Come on, baseball person? Baseball stadium or the greatest gay bar of all time? You get it for twenty million. I'm going for the gay bar. I'm exactly. Sorry. I'm going for the gay bar. We could have a major league gay bar or a minor league baseball. People yeah. are people are not moving to Austin, Texas, for the baseball. No, I mean my concern is the money question. I mean I'm sure yes, it would be lovely if we just had a spare sixty mil lying around to build a ballpark in Hartford. That sounds great and idyllic and pastoral and all the, you know, the American dream. But For a for-profit right. farm and, team. And we have a perfectly good stadium already in New Britain. I'm just confused as to why we need to relocate it at all. And just for, for me, the, the reasons seem pretty arbitrary. I mean, we want it in Hartford to bolster traffic through Hartford. But everything I've read about this, based on the New Britain example, is that people aren't they're eating at the park because that's part of the aesthetic is you get a ballpark, Frank, and then you go home. You're, you know, it's been a six-hour day. You're tired at the end. You're not going to go out to you know, a five-star restaurant in Hartford afterwards. And if that's our incentive for doing this, I'm just confused. But why is New Britain so desperate not to lose the team if it doesn't bring any benefit to a city? 
I guess it's true, too. Because they're going to be sitting on a stadium that's going to be practically empty. I mean, it's the city of New Britain owns that stadium. And it's like you look at, the pro, uh, at like, Rentschler, and that gets used how many days out of the year? I mean, I, I don't know if that's officially, you know, what how people officially look at Rentschler, but I mean, it seems like it's maybe used max 10 times a year. I mean, I think New Britain, I, I think pride does enter into it. And, and, and that, in that sense, maybe I'm wrong to, to dismiss so glibly the kinds of intangibles that you're talking about, Rand, because it really is, I mean, New Britain won't suffer a huge economic impact if they lose uh, the Rockets. Even the, the city leadership today is saying that. There aren't that many jobs. Um, uh, that go along with it. And there isn't a lot of bullet effect um, economic activity around the stadium. There isn't even that much around the stadium that could receive that kind of bullet effect. And I think Rebecca's right, too. People spend their money inside the stadium and then go home. So it it, it isn't – I don't think the economic hit is what they're worried about. It's you don't want to be the city that just lost something else, particularly when you're you're in New Britain. And although it has some wonderful – as Jacques says, cultural treasures and, you know, the Museum of American Art and stuff like that. And, and Staropolska restaurant. Yeah, and, and, and the place that Obama <laughs> went and had the uh, whatever, whatever, the whatever kind of banh mi or what. No, he went, you know, when Obama came here. Yeah, he went, he went to that cafe across from the courthouse, I think. Yeah. yeah. So, they're, I mean, they've got some cool stuff. And, and But I think it's pride. I think, you know, you don't want that. And, and I think that's what Hartford is willing to pay $50 million for. The pride of the – and I put pride in quotes of having a double-A baseball team. Listen, it's been my – I disagree uh, that it's primarily about that. If you look at the problems of downtown Hartford seen over the last 15 years, the, 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 there's no single solution to them. I've, I've often thought, boy, I'm glad that I'm not the city planner because I don't know how to solve downtown Hartford's problems. You need to go from sort of – not nothing, but a situation where you have this, 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 and this, that discrete cultural amenity, some nice parks, no one really living down there, nice and clean, but nothing happening. Well, you've got to solve this by doing six things at once that involve public transit, that involve tripling the number of beds downtown, that involve increasing cultural amenities. And some pieces are now in place in a way that I think is going to be dynamic. I think this park will will add to them. Is it worth the $60 million? I mean, I I don't know how you do that analysis, but I do think it's part of a, of a possibility for a new dynamism downtown, and that's important. I'm going to put Kelly up on the board, then we're going to have to say a goodbye to this topic, although we will come back to it again. Uh, Kelly in West Hartford. Hi, Kelly. Uh, one thing I wanted to say is that if they integrated it with um, businesses or made it a small um, cityscape park where you went to the businesses around the park, it could actually do something. If they just put a stadium in the sea of parking lots, yes, people are going to come in, park, go to the game, and leave. All right. Thanks for that call. The one last thing I do want to say is I do think that it's appalling that this has been presented by the Cigar Administration as this done deal that they worked on for 16 months. It's done. They've got the votes for it. They're going to do the bonding. Don't ask us any questions. It's none of your business. We've taken care of the whole thing. Uh, I, I think it's appalling that the Rockettes ownership lied relentlessly uh, to the people of New Britain and, and for 16 months concealed what they were doing. I mean, there's nobody involved in this thing right now that I I would trust because nobody has behaved in a particularly trustworthy way. The Cigar Administration has let people go to public hearings about their so-called North Development Plan, which turns out to be a complete kabuki for the last 16 months. They've been planning to do something else with that uh, part of town. Anyway, we've got to take a break. We'll come back. We'll, we'll endorse things. Little boy in a baseball hat 
Stands in the field With his ball and bat Says I am the greatest Player of them all Puts his bat on his shoulder And he tosses up his ball And the ball goes up And the ball comes down Swings his bat all the way around The world's so still You can hear the sound The baseball falls To the ground What I really object to is people who say I've never seen a sports. I've totally watched LeBron's launch the Grand Slams. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me. Our interns are Josh Nalea and Lily Tyson. Greg Hill tweets for us a WNPR Colin and appeared in our intro. The part of Bill Curry was played by Van Lingle Mungo. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff pitching, catching, making fireballs, and touchdowns, visit our website, WNPR.org. On Monday, Freakonomics host Stephen Dubner visits the Scramble. And now, back to Colin. All right, time for endorsements, where our expert panel tells you about things that they know about uh, that uh, you might enjoy. So, Rebecca, you want to go first this time? Sure. Um, today, I'm endorsing a wonderful documentary on Netflix called Psalm. It came out in 2012. Um, it's about a bunch of young guys trying to pass the Master Sommelier exam, of which there are only 140 in the world. And if you want to watch a bunch of guys describe white wine as tasting like cut garden hose, this one's for you. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Sorry. Actually, Jacques is serving that wine to his guest this week. <laughs> you just described everything I've ever cooked. <laughs> All right, Jacques, Sounds what have you delicious. got? Um, well, A, I told you I had to do a shameless plug. Tomorrow night, the Mark Twain House Museum is welcoming Dan Brown, the author of Da Vinci Code and Inferno, to the Bushnell, and there's still tickets available. I think it's actually being billed as John Dankowski with Dan Brown. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so um, that's tomorrow night at 8 o'clock, and you go to bushnell.org uh, for that. And I don't know if I've endorsed this, but I love it so much already, but I love it so much I'll endorse it again if I have. And that's um, Sukhothai Restaurant in downtown Manchester, which is wonderful Thai food, and the people there who run it are really nice. And I've never had a bad meal there, and I just absolutely adore Sukhothai. I've been there, too. They do not serve succotash, though. No, think, no, they don't. You think maybe they should. <laughs> yes. Uh, succotash with some kind of uh, fish sauce on it. Uh, all right. So those are uh, Jacques' endorsements. What have you got? Two literary events I'm involved in this Sunday on the campus of uh, Central Connecticut State University. Uh, an organization I'm involved with, Connecticut Young Writers, is having its final awards ceremony. We're oh, awarding nice. prizes to high school poets and prose writers across the state. We have two great speakers, a novelist, Michael White, and the poet, Jasmine Wagner. It begins, the, there's a food and music part for an hour at 1 o'clock, but if you just want to come to hear the, this, the, the talks, come at 2 o'clock. And uh, again, that's at, at uh, it's in Davidson Hall in the Torp Theater. You can look at ctyoungwriterstrust.org. The second thing, and sort of a co-endorsement, although Jacques doesn't know about it, two weeks from today at the Mark Twain House is The Mouth with, oh, yes. with Kyone Wolf. And this is an, it's an evening of storytelling, and I'm going to be one of the storytellers there. We have to extemporaneously tell a story having to do with some brush with a famous person that you had. And I will now here guarantee Joe Namath-like, not that I will be the best storyteller, but that the actual story I have to tell, the encounter with a celebrity, will be unmatched by anything else. That puts a lot of pressure on me. I may totally botch the telling. I'm a writer. I like to have things written out, but this has to just be off the cuff. Two weeks from tonight, 
the mouth at the Mark Twain house with Kion Wolf. It's called The Fame and the Famish Brushes with Celebrity. Is it Joe Namath? Is that who you're brushing? No, well, no. 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 Um, okay, I've got a few things to endorse. A couple of sort of, uh, of them are themed to our, the discussion we just had. Um, some of the comedy that we, we did um, in, in the recorded bits was inspired by Kyle Mooney, who's a terrific cast member of Saturday Night Live, but he hasn't been allowed to do very much stuff. Yeah, I want you to go on YouTube and look for – if you just Google Kyle Mooney – Baseball, you'll get there. Uh, the YouTube video is called Ball Champions. And it's if you have to have a taste for the kind of agonizing social humor of, say, Curb Your Enthusiasm or the Ricky Gervais uh, office, this is really Kyle Mooney pretending to be an inept baseball interviewer. He's at the AT&T Stadium in San Francisco at a Giants game going up to b- baseball fans and asking these questions that just verge on coherence and articulation but fall short. And it's just watching the reactions is amazing. Uh, he's utterly fearless as a comedian in it. Also, you can't see it now, but you eventually will be able to see uh, The Battered Bastards of Baseball. Uh, I saw this up at the Great Barrington Film Festival uh, last week. It's right on point for what we're talking about right now. It tells the story in the 1970s of the Portland Mavericks, who were an independent baseball team. They were a minor league baseball team uh, that completed a double-A league up in Portland. Uh, But because they weren't affiliated with the franchise, they actually had to have sort of open auditions to get their players. They just put an ad in Sporting News and people hitchhiked across the country and drove across the country and they put together this amazing team Kurt Russell's father was the, the president of it. He's an amazing story all by himself. He was on, on uh, Bonanza for 13 years. You just you have to see this. It's a really interesting commentary on baseball. And then, uh, Jacques, I don't know whether you've seen this yet or not. Vanya and Sonia and Masha and Spike. Not yet. At the Harvard Stage Company. Trying to. I was there last night, and I will say I've never seen an audience at the Harvard Stage Company love something this much. At a certain point, the two of us sitting together were saying, are these like all the relatives of the cast or something? The, first of all, <laughs> the, the stage company was full, like really full on a Thursday night, which is interesting all by itself. This is for a very funny Christopher Durang show. I'm not quite sure I thought it was exactly as funny as the rest of the audience thought it was, and the rest of the audience was laughing at like inhalations. Um, but it is funny, and, and, and you will have a good time. And, and this, I do have to shout out one actor, Mark Nelson, has a, a soliloquy about how things were in the late 50s and the early 60s. It's a really long soliloquy, very difficult for an actor to sustain. He does it marvelously. Uh, so uh, very interesting cast in general uh, and a lot of fun. So go see. I, I can never remember the title of it, though. Vanya and Sonia and Masha, Masha and, and Spike. Spike. Uh, and that's at the Harper Stage Company. Thanks to Rebecca Castellani, to Jacques Lamar, to Rand Cooper. We'll be back on Monday with The Scramble. We're going to throw it over to our baseball correspondent, Kyle, from the new Hartford Rockcat Stadium. What's going on over there, Kyle? Over there live. Talking, talking baseball, hitting. Catching, make, making all the right, all the plays happen. All right, that about sums it up for WNPR Sports. I'm Kyone Wolf.